Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is killing ghost loads and phantom data with my friend, Michael Darden. How's it going, Michael? Yo, it's going great today. How are you? Very good. Very good. This is a brand new topic. Uh, when I was introduced to you not so long ago, Michael, I uh, I heard the problem you described. and I was like, oh, boy. Like, that is a problem. And it was, and I guess it's a big problem. I just, I don't live it every day. So I just was like, yeah, that's a huge problem that needs to be dealt with. But before we deal with that, um, please introduce yourself and your company. Sure. So my name is Michael Darden. I am the CEO of DFM Data Corp. And I'm excited to be on the phone with you today. I, I've watched a bunch of your, your shows before, and you've got cutting edge guests that are thinking about things in the right direction, really what the future of logistics is in logistics. And um, I, I think we have a spot to be able to really help this industry overcome some challenges that it's currently not really equipped to be able to resolve on its own. Right. So, Mike, what, what's your company? Where are you based? So DFM Data Corp is based in Atlanta, Georgia, and DFM Data Corp is a utility company. It's designed to be a uh, communication tool between digital partners moving freight on the highways in the United States and Canada and Mexico. So it's a North American tool for cleansing and communicating amongst trusted partners. Yep. We'll get more into that because, again, I think that the, the problem we're talking about today is, again, killing ghost loads and the phantom data. That's, in effect, what your company does, among other things. But that's that's a big chunk of it, right? So the phantom data and the ghost loads, that, that they're kind of the cause of, of our, our purpose for existing. The, the phantom data uh, takes place just by the normal course of business of how how, how shippers who have goods that have committed to getting them to their customer have to find somebody to perform the service of getting the goods from their dock to the customer's dock. Right. And when they do that, their shopping is um, uh, done in a lot of different ways. Phone calls to brokers, phone calls to past carriers, phone calls, emails yeah. to everybody that they know and before you know it that one load that they have to move to their one customer is on 20 different right. load boards looking yeah. like the same load. Before we get into that, please uh, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you started DFM. Sure. So, so I, I was born and raised in Long Island, New York. Um, I, I lived in New York until I was 15 years old and uh, career highlights actually get to start up there. Even though I was only 15, I started working at my uncle's auto parts store when I was about nine and uh, just worked with them through the time that I was 15 and had a really good work ethic when I moved down here to Atlanta and um, went to high school at, at Dunwoody High School and gra graduated uh, 87 and went to uh, Auburn University. And on my way out of town, I'm looking at that great big tower on North Avenue with the big Coca-Cola sign on it and going, this is Cokestown and I'm going to be coming back to it. And after university, I, I came back to Atlanta and was really focused on 
trying to get a job with a company like a Coca-Cola that was was leading and, and the, the head of the skyline for the city of Atlanta. So I started a 10-year career with Coca-Cola uh, that consummated uh, working in the National Parts Distribution Facility in Alpharetta. But um, by the, the end of my, my term, I kind of had a real career highlight of being able to be the operations manager for the 96 Olympics. and Which was in Atlanta, right? It was our hometown, right? So it's right here in Atlanta and Coke wanted to paint the town red with tables and coolers and umbrellas and chairs. And they had to have a place to distribute all that. And I got to be the ops manager that received in over $80 million worth of point of purchase and point of sale equipment and distributed it to 57 different venues on a big fleet of trucks that was Coca-Cola equipment bought brand new. So I was a, a transportation management company and a warehouse management company and an inventory control company. And it was a, a business plan that was built to be for 24 months to be able to stand up a operation to run the Olympics and then close it down without interrupting the normal flow of what the bottler did here in, in the state of Georgia and specifically right. here in Atlanta. So it, it was a real highlight. I got to be able to experience some just incredible technology well ahead of its time. Um, Nextel had come in uh, to Atlanta and laid some some of their early networking capabilities and provided Coca-Cola's uh, team with these Nextel push-to-talk radios. Oh, you were pretty And we had instant then. communication <laughs> with everybody. And I mean, nobody had a cell phone. And all of a sudden, all of us could text and we could instantly push a button and get a little ring and communicate directly to them. And we could even make a phone call, although it was really expensive. It was, you know, the push-to-talk was our... our our chosen method of communication, but it really gave me some insight of what the world was going to look like when everybody had right. a device in their hand. Right. So it's interesting. You mentioned Coca-Cola, <coughs> excuse me. That's kind of like uh, when you're in the bottling business like that, or you, so Coke makes the formula and then they have all these bottlers are those bottlers. They're like logistics companies all by themselves. Very unique because they are mixing up the formula somewhere i mean mixing up the the secret sauce the diet coke or the regular coke putting it in bottles and moving it right those are pretty pretty sophisticated there, logistics there's, there's actually almost another layer that's involved in there right they, they, they really keep things separate as far as where the raw materials for the syrup are in 55 gallon drums that are going to a, a manufacturing facility for the uh, assembly creation packaging of, of the product. And the product was a small piece of what we did during the Olympics. I mean, it was a skew. It was you know, right, each, right, right. each flavor, but the, 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 the real challenge was the, the move in setup operation control distribution from uh, a central, you know, product distribution point and, point of purchase distribution point and get it to those locations. And with Coke, like with, with a lot of, of companies that uh, are involved in really managing their value chain upstream and then product manufacturing and then downstream to the distributors, they get real control of the push and pull because they have their own trucks. And when you need somebody to go get something, you tell them to go get it and they go get it. It's kind of a forced dispatch, but the, the the market that's dynamic is where a, a lot more variability comes in. Yep. And I also think like when you go to a retailer, uh, whether it's Coke or Pepsi or any of the, uh, I think beer companies too, you go to Walmart or Meyer, you'll see those guys are doing that vendor managed inventory where you see somebody in a Coca-Cola uniform walking in and putting in the bottles, putting in the new point of sale stuff. 
and they must come right directly. So you guys must be connected signal wise saying, Hey, uh, we just sold this much Diet Coke. Come fill us up again. Right. So in, in the early days, I remember how, how antiquated it was that you had a guy in a car that was driving ahead of the truck to be able to go do inventory on what the store was to tell the driver uh, oh. what he was supposed to <laughs> unload. And the truck was loaded with inventory to be able to fill what their route was for the day for what they expected they were going to sell across their route. But it became like a mobile warehouse of, of just, you know, how much do I have left on right. my mobile truck today that's doing this route? But, you know, computers brought that along, right? And that predictiveness right. of looking at what real data can drive as far as projection is... Right. Uh, Think we think you know I haven't done anything yet or lately on vendor managed inventory, but it is again. I think that's the that's one of those pro moves where you see like the top players playing it, right? The the top retailers expect it, and the top consumer packaged goods companies provide it. Well, and, it's uh, just it's one of those things that you know if you want to be able to be accountable for something, you need to have access to the information that allows you to be proactive in solving right. problems. And access to data has always been the problem here. Shipping and, and movement of goods in transit just fell into this black hole and they still, you know, for the most part, fit there. There's a whole industry that's emerged over the past five years or so of visibility and track and trace. And right. now they call that table stakes. But, you know, the, for, forever, that wasn't there. That didn't exist. Right. You called somebody and they called somebody and they called somebody right. or uh, you yeah. said you were calling somebody, but that was, you know, the best yeah. tracking that was available. Inventory was managed so poorly at some companies. It was just like, hey, what what you you'd find, oh, we have a whole bunch of this. I don't even know when we bought that. Put it on sale. <laughs> yep, it's on sale. We had a lot of it, but we haven't sold that in a while. Yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing the visibility, you know, of of uh, of how access to this information and and action can be really driven from accurate information. And yep. When you don't have that accurate information, it's filled with suppositions and and suspicious yeah. uh, things that you need auditors to check afterwards. Myth myth, myth takes over. <laughs> and it's exactly tales. right. Yeah. And, and garbage in, garbage out. Right. I yeah, mean, that, yeah. that's that's been the old, old wives' tale of this whole industry from yes. from inception. I, I told you, Michael. Michael, <laughs> we're prepping that. Uh, a common theme lately on my podcast is old, dirty data. But before we get to that, so you were at Coca-Cola for a long time. Then where'd you go? So um, right after Coca-Cola and the Olympic project, I was a, somewhat of a hot commodity. I, I got to be able to do a bunch of operations consulting jobs with uh, implementing warehouse management systems and, and ERP systems. And um, I had a consulting company before I started with the Olympics and uh, really made it so that I could could be adding what I learned during the Olympics to a lot of mid-sized companies without having to be a full-time employee of any of them. But it gave me a lot of breadth of, of implementing warehouse management systems and what the current state of, of the systems in the marketplace were with, you know, Percon and, and Zebra and, you know, label making in its early days to be able to get identifiers onto products so that barcode scanners could read things it was a whole logistics element. The, the barcodes weren't printed on boxes, right? I mean, it was, you received it in, in some craft colored box, and then you had to make barcode labels to be able to put it into your inventory if you were going to use scanning devices. And over time, that's emerged to be able to push that value up chain so that it's being pre-labeled by the manufacturer before it comes in so that that additional handling step right. is not there. But 
what it showed me in the warehouse side was that, you know, that identification and needing to be able to have access uh, to the proper data and, and make sure that it's accurate data to be responding to for your inbound and for your outbound movements was completely essential and right. completely obfuscated. I just, I couldn't see where right. anything was. Right. Right. So when did you start DFM data? So DFM data started uh, April of 2019. Um, I had kind of a, a life-changing event in uh in, in February of 2019, where I had an opportunity to be able to purchase an asset that I had uh, had, had developed a long time ago, and, and it really triggered the opportunity to be able to uh, focus on this specific need that the FM Data Corp is working on. What, what was the asset? So it, it's a patent. Um, I, when, when I was a, a young man, I was uh, hired by a, a company in the early 2000s to be able to be a consultant for them. And uh, I assigned my IP to them and I got paid as a contractor. And, you know, I, I just did work for them to be able to, to do what they were looking for. And, and they wanted to build uh, a tool that used the internet to be able to match trucks to capacity. And I, I had some experience in that. So I shared with them what my thoughts were on it. And they said, I don't think anybody's ever done that before. And I, I said, well, I, I think there's the real way to do this. And, you know, if I got a team around me, I could put that together and they hired some folks and we put some stuff together and we, we wrote a patent for this in 2004. And I worked for this company until 2007, but um, I assigned my rights to this patent, to this company. And like every good consultant does, I, I, I bowed away when I was done and, you know, thanked them for my, my nice paycheck. And, um, around 2015, I, I started to see this digital freight matching market come together. And I looked at what this asset was that I had written many years ago and kind of kicked myself in the shins a bunch of times and, um, you know, said, boy, I wish I would have been able to keep that. And, uh, in 2018, they, they weren't using it. So they weren't doing anything with it. Um, the, the company that I had worked for was bought by another company and the company that I worked for with was a public company that had done a what would be considered a SPAC today, uh, but it was a reverse merger with a non-operating shell back in the day that I was running it. And um, that public company had some value to another company who was wanting to have a vehicle to go public. And they bought this public shell, which happened to include this little manila envelope that had this little patent sitting inside of it. And I, I, I started my career many, many moons ago at working at my dad's company and my dad owned an engineering business. And I started there at 19 and I drew, I did patent drawings. So the way patents were always, I think they probably still are. You do these, you do on these card stocks, they, there's the legal piece, but then there's the drawing piece. And we, Absolutely. Did, the, we did the drawing piece. It was a, it's a very unique thing, but we did a lot for Ford Motor Company and Accelo and Troy, uh, oh, a bunch of lawyers. And it was very interesting work. Uh, Patents it, themselves are very interesting. I mean, just the whole history of, you know, how they came about. I mean, they're in Article 1, right. Section 8 of the United States Constitution. You know, I mean, right. they, it's not like it was an afterthought. It's Article 1, Section 8. It, it's it's right. pretty quick. Yeah, and it's interesting because every attorney you talk to will tell you some crazy story about patents because um, especially in the automotive where I did a lot of automotive patents and I won't mention um, names, but I worked with a lot of the big three 
And it's funny because you see a, a blueprint from one company, but it would be handed to you by another company. Like, yeah, we're patenting this. I was like, oh, it looks like your competition. Huh? It's like you're stealing this. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and other times they're like, we really, we really like this part. We'd like to patent this and make 20 iterations of it. <laughs> so you'd like make a hinge here, take, remove this screw here. So you're like, okay. So every potential um, yeah. workaround. But no, pe- people don't realize the complexity that's involved in being able to, to write the scope that covers what something is and all the variances that that's are within I, it. And that's what, when you're working with patent uh, attorneys, they all have an undergrad in engineering. So they uh, they understand the technical and they understand the uh, legal. That's obviously. right. That's right. So, getting back to this asset, that's is this is in, in a bullet point. What is that? What is that so patent? It, it is uh, the the title of it is dynamic and predictive information processing system for transport assets. Yeah. That's one yeah. sentence, yeah. and and it, it takes a little more than that. It basically says if there is a system that has numerous carriers and their drivers and tractors and trailers and numerous carriers, excuse me, numerous shippers that have numerous distribution centers that have rules of those shippers that are shipping things that a system can sit between the two of them and make the matches based off of certain parameters, origin zip codes, destination zip codes, required equipment, insurance requirements, proof of operating authority, service level areas, and then usually the final piece is price. You, you got to first be able to get it. Who, who can do this? And then of the ones that can do it, which one do I want to pick? Right. So and, I think, so if I could simplify that, I think what you're talking about is there needs to be a common language between shippers, carriers on all this information. There, there does. And these digital freight matching companies have created these marketplaces where a right. shipper can say, these are my loads and a carrier can say, these are my trucks, and my drivers, and they can be matched together based off of that marketplace. Right. right. So let's, before we get in more into this, so the, this, this patent became the basis of DFM, correct? So, I, you know, in 2015, I reread the thing and I, I was like, well, that's that's really tight. And this industry hasn't changed that much. And, and then 2016 and 2017, and I'm watching more and more players get into the space. And um, as I read again the patent, because you, like you said, the pictures, you know, I can look at the pictures and see what's in there and you can look at them and get a good overview. But this patent is 37 pages long with, you know, five point font or six point font. It's difficult to be able to really consume the whole document and understand everything that's inside of it. So I, I've read it, I mean, probably 30 or 40 times. And, um, you know, the, one of the times that I read it, I realized that there was, there was a, a claim, four claims in the patent that specifically identify multiple posting of loads in a dynamic marketplace and multiple posting of capacity in dynamic marketplaces. And I was like, well, that's unique. And nobody yeah. is doing that yet. Nobody, you know, right. there's, there, there are, have been historically, you know, reposters that can, you know, take things right. and, and push them further, but that's, those are four specific claims of the patent. So right. I was like, well, that's the place to be able to really insert a company that can do a utilitarian function of right. cleansing that multiple capacity so, and multiple loads. So that is that those are the phantom 
That is the phantom data. That That's is it. the ghost it, loads. It and, is and, phantom and, data and ghost loads. And, and how that happens is, well, why don't you explain it? So uh, when a shipper is just doing their normal job of trying to be able to move something, they're going to reach out to their normal contacts and their normal contacts in an effort to be able to service them are going to reach out for their resources so that they can be the one that says yes first. But whoever says yes first and gets the deal, everybody else that was working on it is still working on right. it. So so me as, let's just say, I'm a, 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 you're the shipper and I'm your freight broker and you say, Joe, I need um, these six loads covered. And I go, yep. excellent, excellent. And I work with you all the time. And I go and I put these on some load boards. I put on my load boards. I put it a few places. And um, uh, those loads start to slowly but surely get, or hopefully fast, but they, they get covered, right? But maybe I put that load multiple places, right? So it's on multiple load boards. So it comes off of one load board where the actual carrier found it. And and I washed my hands. I was like, yep, I got, done. Mike, I got Michael's truck. Hallelujah, life's good. And... Meanwhile, I put it on other load boards and it never came off. Now, how many phone calls are you going to get this afternoon on that load? (laughs) Yeah. And and when you get those phone calls, are those real buyers that want to be able to service you? Well, what's interesting about that is if somebody was to call me and say, hey, Joe, I was looking to move that uh, Michael Darden load. And I say, oh, yeah, actually, that was already covered. And I go, by the way, do you always work in that lane? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm a, and so you're talking. And, and so it, it's not always considered a complete waste of time. And I That's say, correct. I go, I work with Michael. We do five loads a week on this in this lane. And so life is not so it, it, it's a little bit of a waste of time because he was looking for a load. Right. And I, and I and I have other business, but it's not a complete waste of time because now I know next time Michael calls, I got another guy who I might want to work with. So let, let's let's look at a, a little a little different scenarios. Let, let's say that you're you're traveling and you're wanting to be able to go from Atlanta up to to North Carolina, and you're looking for a flight. You, when you go look for your flights, each of those airlines tell you how many seats they have left at each value, and your transaction is in a limbo hold situation until you get a commitment that you say, "I want that seat." And as soon as you say, I want that seat, one of those four seats that were left at that amount that was there for the airline to be able to sell now goes down to three for anybody else that's looking at it. But that takes place because when you say, I'm confirmed, I want that ticket, is when a confirmation number, a new, unique transaction ID that is your passenger name record for that specific trip leaving from this airport, going to another airport on a specific time and a specific date to arrive somewhere else is booked and paid for. And it seems like in this trucking logistics industry, the decision to be able to say, I need to buy transportation services and I have a committed load doesn't get a passenger name record. It doesn't get a load identification number that is... Is useful for unique. the industry to use. So it's, it's not just unique. Not there. Yep. So, so in the other scenario that I just was talking about, I move. Michael Darden calls me. Says, "Joe, I need you to move some stuff." I post these on load boards. I, let's just say it's a, a few load boards that I put it on, right? Yep. Then, as soon as the carrier says, "I want this," and we confirm, 
well, first off, there's a unique identifier on that load. So I put it on multiple boards, but there's a unique identifier. And so when it comes off of one board, it notifies the other boards automatically. Bam. That's what our utility does. Our utility is basically a sensor that sits on top of that unique identifier and says when the status of this load changes to advance, the other parties that have that same piece of information that have that same load should be notified that right. they that there's an update. Now that doesn't yep. doesn't right. remove it. It doesn't say take it off, it's gone. It says this load now is in a pre-booked status. And it's it's less likely that you're going to get it, but you could still leave it on your board. That's a business decision. Right. But you should have the information that updates you right. so that when you get another call from a carrier, you can say to them, mm, it's in a pre-booked status. Think, Do you want me to check on it for you or right. not? I remember looking, and again, I, I, I'm I'm more of an LTL guy, so I would never bumped into a ton of this. But I remember, you know, working at a uh, a, a carrier that had a freight brokerage area, and then with their, we'd always have that big load board up. Mm -hmm. And then when someone would say, "Oh yeah, well that's listed four times," it's just, you know that they've listed it four different ways, and or or that that is that's not really there. That that capacity, I don't believe it. Yeah, he's already people, gone. It's, yeah, people it, would say it, that. Yeah, people would say He's that. Fishing. Yeah, so so we would kind of know some of the data wasn't clean, and I suspect with all the um, digital freight brokers out there and all the digital freight matching systems, we're getting better and better at it. But nothing right now, I don't nothing I believe solves this unique or lack of unique identifier problem. Yeah, it's it's really what the root cause of this is. You know, the passenger name record allows for your trip to be able to now include your hotel and your car rental on it because the experience can be tied to that overall transaction. We don't have a way to do that in this industry. And if we did, it would literally advance the, the digitization of this space in a controlled and understood rules and governance-based process. Well, let's, let, and let's talk a little bit about the problem. So one of the problems I have with, so when we talk about this, this ghost load, so the ghost load is, the one that I go, oh, hey, there's there's Michael Darden looking for, or Joe Joe's looking for capacity for Michael Darden's load. It's not real, and so mm -hmm. it's 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 a ghost load, right? It's yep. not really there. It, yep. it was there. It was there an hour ago. It's gone now. So th there's a, there's a couple ways to look at it, and, and I look at them differently. I look at phantom data as being that I have a load and it's been pushed numerous places and it's left behind. That's phantoms. Ghost loads is a lot of times done with shopping where somebody wants to be able to know what the rate is for right. something to go okay. from here to here because they're doing an RFP for somebody and they need a couple of carriers and they ghost a load out there and put a, a, a 48,000 pounds going full truckload from here to here and there is no load at all. There's no reference right. number. They are just shopping. They're trying to get a price indicator. So, But go, Joe, there's one other piece I want to mention mm -hmm. to you because we talked about you know it being one load and it's really one load that looks like 20. There's another situation that happens, and it's when somebody is on an orange orchard and they're going to have 40 truckloads of oranges because harvest is in. They don't list that 40 times. They list it one time and they receive phone calls from anybody that calls in on right. it until they're done. Okay. And the problem with that is that your demand 
from the market is deflated from what the actual is. And on the other side of the phantom data, you have inflated data for the demand on the other side. And you sit there and go, I don't care how good you think the digital freight matching systems can get in doing it with each of them in their own language and their own canonical steps that don't correspond to someone else's same steps without having the right. same lingo, the same jargon, you, you, you can't get to an optimized industry. Right. And the root cause analysis just brings you to the point that we need a unique identifier right. that everybody can just hang on to. Right. And when you think about it, so let's talk about the problems here. So one of the problems is, we already kind of alluded to it, is it's this, when there's ghost, da- ghost loads or phantom data, I waste my time. I waste, I make phone calls I don't need to make. <clears throat> I send emails out. I don't need to send. And we're all spending. I, I mean, do you, is there any way to put a number? On There's that? a relationship factor to that. Also, if you're pushing further information to other people when they receive it and they try to respond to it and they don't get good results, you get blacklisted, brownlisted from their right. people that they want to be able to work to because the data that you're providing to them is more fluff. Right. And Everybody has their own ways to try to KPI scorecard this inside of their own little operation, right. but we're doing the same transaction. Right. So, so we waste our time. And then I would say another piece, and I don't know, again, I'm, I don't know how to quantify the waste of time, but it's big. It's a big number out there. It's, it's kind it's of a it, big number. Yeah. It, it, it's it, a big it, number and solving it with putting more people on it makes it worse, not better. <laughs> This is well, this is custom suited for a tech solution, but there's another thing problem with this is you because you, you said it we, we're over inflating demand sometimes, and we're over inflate or under inflating or over inflating demand and supply at different times, and that makes our work a lot harder. It does, and and I, I'll, I'll share just another little airline story with you. There's an interesting piece when you have group travel. When you have 40 people to be able to go someplace on an airline, you can't go book that through the reservation site. They, they can't manage it. You, you have to go through a group process to be able to do it. That's the scenario of the orange orchard, right? Is there has to be a separate routine to be able to the, do the, that scenario. But the good news about um, plane travel is one person owns the plane or one company owns the plane. So at some point I say, I filled all the seats. The problem we have is we have all these DFMs and all these freight brokers out there that are um, separate and in competition. That's the fragmentation <laughs> of this industry, right? It is, is, is the different types of equipment that you have, the different types of models to get service uh, from a control tower perspective or a managed freight perspective or a dedicated freight perspective or an RFP process or a spot market capacity. Right. There, there's and we lots look of at, choices. And we look at our data as um, proprietary and we should. Certainly worth protecting. Certainly yeah. worth, worth, worth cleansing, using for informed decision making in the future. Right. So before we get to the solution, I think we're we're talking about the problem. First off, we're wasting an enormous amount of time making extra phone calls, extra emails. Then the the supply and demand signals are always off. There's almost no way for them to be on when you have phantom data and ghost loads. And then ultimately, this costs money. This this adds to the inefficiency of the market. 
I, I hesitate to even say how much it is. I've heard estimates of people from that, that we should claim 15% of savings of time. I think it's much greater than that. I think in sitting in a chair as being a broker to be able to make the phone calls from the boards, the number of calls that I'm making to a dead end has got to be approaching right. 70%. And I mean, I, I get off those calls quickly so they don't take as much of my time to be able to do. But th there's a lot of, is that load still available as the right. first line that is set? Right. Is that truck still available? Oh, yeah. And um, Mike, I think I think of this myself is you have one of those crazy days where you're running around. And again, I'm more of an LTL guy, but I've managed large amount of, of, of freight, both LTL and truckload. And once you cover a load, you might have called 20 people. Now, I know what I say call, that's less and less likely. There's a lot of systems that are doing yeah. that now. But emails and messaging. And but such. then all yeah. of a sudden, once you got it covered and you're like, okay, I just want to make sure the, the new carrier gets there. And then you get just a million phone calls and texts. Dude, call me back. Call me back. Call me back. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know just, where you are. Where, yeah. How do I get into your parking lot? Well, and you're, and, but I guess my point is you stop, you stop picking up the phone because you, you're all, you're only worried about your new driver picking up that load. So all the other, all the other that's carriers right, are calling you back. And that's where the reputation comes in, you know, is the fact that there's, there's issue with being able to um, not get good responses where, where you're reprioritizing your list of who you're calling first on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, because of the fact of what happened yesterday. Right. Right. Yeah. That, and the digital side of this, you know, is 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 a different indicator. Right, Joe? I mean, the, the the EDI error of being able to push transactional information into a system um, has only gotten easier with APIs. But pushing a unique combination of information from one system to another doesn't facilitate the connectivity to the other participants in the marketplace. It just makes two markets talk to each other. And what we're seeing happen is that there's a lot of companies that will make announcements about that two companies are now working together. And that's great that they're working together, but there's 900 market participants that are involved and two of them working together is, is not a, a, a pathway that's going to get us there. Every time these groups get to five or seven or 10, I think the most that's out there at the moment is 13 interfaces. It gets to the point that it's unmanageable. Right. And so, everybody's realized this in other industries. It's just got to come here now. Right. So what you're what you what you're doing over at DFM, you and your team, you, what you're trying to do is say, let's <clears throat> let's agree to a unique identifier for every shipment. As the basis. And then do the governance work for what else would a neutral utility be able to add value to these digital players that are making transactions in real time that they can't do for themselves, but a utility could do for them? Right. So when you say, to, you mentioned utility, so you guys are that, you're like an industry standards group, in effect. Pretty much. That's, that's our objective is to be able to help that alignment take place and to set the governance in a way that allows the members to be able to set those rules and we just really have put the guardrails up so that they can establish the rules for best practices within their own ecosystem connected to the common canonical so so 
there could be. So what makes you the industry standard? Why, why is DFM? I mean, couldn't, couldn't a whole bunch of people say, um, you know what? We're a big company. We'll set the standard. We're, we're, we're going to get two, two big players and we're going to set the standard for the whole industry. I'm just playing a little devil advocate. No, I, and, and I've heard this before from, from several <laughs> of the big players and talking to them is, is, is why you, and the, the why you is, is twofold. The you first can't one, just get by on your good looks, Mike. I mean, it's, yeah, I, it I, takes I can, you so I far. Try, Come on, it's man. not going to get me there. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the why me is the fact that every one of these companies that are competing with each other to digitize this marketplace seems to think that they're going to be the one winner. And they're the well, one winner the is the, <laughs> well, but, but the one winner is the consumer. The consumer is the one that we should be looking out for to be able to to really optimize what this industry's information can do. And this level of where we are in the iteration of being able to digitize is currently um, saturated with companies that are are being uh, invested in by private equity and venture capital dollars to be able to maximize the return on their investment of this company that is making a digital freight matching transaction. And what they have done very effectively is identify that when you can see what a shipper is comfortable paying for a transaction, and you can see what a carrier is comfortable for receiving for the transaction, you can build the gap between there digitally using a system. Yep. And that makes a lot of money for the broker, a lot of money for the digital intermediary, but most of the time in a digital transaction, they're not having to do very much. And the system is calculating what the maximum amount is that can be charged to the shipper and what the minimum amount is that the carrier will take. And the spread is what they're, the, the, the intermediary is seeking to make in most cases. Now, there are some companies that have developed their platform and are offering it as a subscription or as a, a feature or a function to be able to do something that's right. you know a technical match of the transaction as they describe it. But I mean, the, the functions of, of matching the loads and the capacity and the, the requirements of carriers and shippers uh, really hasn't changed in a, a long period of time. But, but what has changed is the, the cost per load is going down, the, the actual cost to make it happen. But I would also say that um, the margins are going down. And I think just for the reasons you just mentioned, but what's interesting, getting back to the unique identifier. So... So all these companies are out there and their hope is we won't have to worry about this because we'll be the one winner and there won't be other, but that's not really what, where we're at anytime soon. They're, that, that's exactly what never. they're going to say, Joe. That's <laughs> what exactly what they're going to say is we're, we're going to win. We, we want to win. And from my perspective, I want them to win. I want each of the companies so, that are so, bringing the digitization to the market to win. Right. So, so how do you get all the players together? That, and I think that's how this kind of the way your company structured. So talk about that. So we, we, um, we established our entity for the governance model as being a, we live, I live in the state of Georgia. So this is formed as a Georgia uh, limited liability for-profit corporation. However, the, the bylaws of the corporation have uh, identified that the members really should have an influential voice. And of the initial common shares of the company, 28% have been allocated for the first members of the consortium to be able to fund and be part of the utility. So we don't have venture capital or private right. equity leading us. We have 
the actual members being on the committees to be able to drive and and, and be part of the the ROI so for those, the, the profitness of the company. So those did you say forty members? So it's 140 members that have been identified as holding 18% or excuse me, 20% of the equity. And there's an 8% equity that's allocated for the third wave of, of uh, digital companies that participate. And the, the, so there's sorry, an incentive for to get in early <laughs> for everybody. There's a big incentive for them. I mean, a limited number of 40 positions at the start, they get 2,500 common shares for the first participating members. The next hundred members, they get a thousand shares for their contribution. And the third group is the one that we haven't set the math for because the members will be in position to be steering the committee at that point. So when you say members, are those freight brokers or are they carriers? Are they shippers? Who, who are we talking about? Where, who is that? Yes, yes, and yes, right? This is an ecosystem. And the ecosystem's participants all have roles. Uh, what we recognized was that the, there's, there's a planning stage and there's an execution stage of each of these transactions. The execution stage and the track and trace and the updates, that's the service level that the DFMs are providing to each of their customers and they're managing the relationships with their shippers. But those shippers are working with numerous DFMs. So they, they don't necessarily tell everybody that they're working with them and that they're giving 20 loads to all six DFMs every day. But they kind of know it, that they can kind of see that they're only getting, you know, four of the 20 loads and they know they're going somewhere else. So this, this problem exists across the marketplace with shippers, with contributing members and with digital freight matching companies. So we have different classes of membership. There are DFM members, there are contributing members, and there are shipper members. And shipper members uh, are, are often interested in that up chain and down chain right value chain of everything that they're doing. And they have three PLs that are plugged into different parts. And we can basically sit as an umbrella to be able to right. connect those assets through a, a digital canonical. Right. And Mike, Michael, one of the things uh, when we are talking about this offline is, you know, there, there's a lot of standards that we live with in our life. Everywhere you walk or in, in your daily life, you look at your keyboard here. At some point, we, we ended up with a keyboard that is standardized, right? So right. I don't even know who owns that. Probably nobody owns that. It's just, it just happened, right? But um, even the laptop has a million standards now. So you might make a chip, but it, 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 the chip fits a certain way, right? There's, there's certain things that we, the industries that make the chips, the ones that make the keyboards, the people who make all these products, they at some point said, you know, it makes sense for us to get together. So we're not all, individually trying to set a standard. Let's have an industry standard. It'll be better for all of us because we're going to sell more of our product, all of us. Hopefully, hopefully it's a win-win. So this is us. the reason this is the real reason what the why me, Joe, is, is the fact that the 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 patent that I was able to buy back in 2019 that has these claims would be considered a SEP, a standards enabling patent. And a standards enabling patent means that it doesn't describe every single little twitch that you could do off of the historical data to be able to figure out when somebody might be arriving 93% of the time, like the most recent patent that's been issued you know, for four kites that had the big deal made about it. And it's a great patent for being able to do that sliver of being able to do 
the one little destination, for, you know, projection. But a standards enabling patent is kind of when there's a whole industry that is defined in it. And above that, there's a lot of citations. There's a lot of people that have done derivative things from what that work is. But below it, from the roots side, there really aren't foundational patents that are are scoping the same solution in the same way. And when those patents are formed, you know, and they get mass adoption and there's lots of companies that are practicing that invention, you, you have a choice of what to be able to do. And what I saw was the opportunity to be able to help organize and to be able to help the industry organize in a safe place that they could gather as unheardable cats and each get a chance to have their voice heard and establish what the standards are for their interconnection and build one API interface as opposed to the 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 thousands that would need to be built to, for them to be able to connect individually. Right, right. And, you know, we talked about the, the problem that's being solved. And again, the, when they keep coming up on a podcast, it's old, dirty data. We need to clean up the old, dirty data in our space. And one thing we didn't touch on is, uh, you know, we all want more, uh, you know, our, our, the people we serve, the shippers and ultimately the consumers want more sustainability. They want us to do a better job. We all want to do a better job. Empty miles are the enemy of our business, right? Sure. So if we can have fewer empty miles, uh, that's a good thing. And I think the way we're going to get there is with data. And this is just one more place where you go, can we clean up the data a little bit? And then what is the, what is the impact on reduction of empty miles? What is the, and then so, what's so, the impact so me, on the environment? Let, let me just give a quick example of one of the things that, that we think is possible with this consortium that currently isn't possible. And, you know, Convoy does a great job of putting out their footprint and their their uh, eco environmental friendliness of, of what their objectives are in scorekeeping and trying to be able to reduce those those empty miles. Transfix has done work in the same way to be able to uh, demonstrate the importance of that green impact. But if, if you're a shipper and you're working with one marketplace, let's just say that it's Transfix and, and you post your load with them and they have a truck in their marketplace and it shows that truck is 29 miles away from your origin location and the price to be able to move it is $1,400 to be able to get to the destination. If that's the place that you're shopping and you're able to, to book that truck and he drives empty for 29 miles to be able to get to your origin, all of that, of, of that carbon that was produced during that period of time is waste. He drove empty to be able to get to that spot because he was the closest person that you could identify. Right. But if we had an overarching ecosystem that the order for, for Transfix's shipper came into the system and showed Transfix that there is one of their known capacities that is out there that can serve this customer that's 29 miles away, but in the convoy system, there's actually a truck that's three miles away, and it could get it there to be $1,200 instead of $1,400 right. and make it so he's got 26 miles of saved consumption right. of tax credit. Those can be claimed. Right. Those can make it so that the plus and the minus of the right. use of the vehicle and the tax claim is captured, but only if you have the data yeah, to do it. This this is a this is a common theme. I had Andrew Leto on my podcast not so long ago. He's the founder of Global Trans and now he said emerge. <clears throat> and he, he said one of the things that they say at uh, emerge it's an RFP software. 
is he said he goes it's my opinion that most of the time the truck that comes to pick up your stuff is not necessarily the best carrier to pick up your stuff maybe there was somebody to your point closer and he says how do we get all the data all this data out there so we're we're able to better share and ha- and get rid of those empty miles, but also serve the customers better and hopefully make a few bucks on the way. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, Andrew Lito has been a realist and 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 uh, an opportunist to be able to work with his his, his growth through Global Trans and 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 into Emerge and um, you know I, I I just applaud the players that are are have taken the risk to be able to go and try to be able to digitize an industry that is very fragmented, that requires a huge amount of transformative energy from a staff of people that are telling people there's a better way to be able to do this. COVID helped this a lot, right? Everybody going home and being digital and working from home and looking for new rates for new locations that they went to, it really, you know, Put, put a shot of adrenaline into the growth of this industry and add to that the private equity and venture capital funding that has you know gone from $300 million in 2017 being invested into this space to $55 billion invested in the first six months of this year. It, it makes a difference and it oh, makes yeah. a lot of players in the market. But the thing that they're all doing is, is, is kind of living off of the old, you know, let, let's automate the process. Let's digitize the process as opposed to digitalization of the entire marketplace. And I think that's one of the things that, um, uh, you know, the gentleman with Lighthouse has been talking about also is the difference between digitalization and digitization. They're yep, I had, I, not the same. Yeah. I had, um, you talking about Jeff D'Angelo? Yeah. Yep. If he's been on the podcast a few times, the founder of Turbo, I don't know, over yep. at Lighthouse. Where he's yes. using turbo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's but yeah, he's not, just nice on to the, be able to maintain that relationship. Yeah. And what's interesting, uh, what he talked about a lot is this just so, so much siloed information. We still have all these different silos. And he said, and, um, you know, we, we keep creating uh, information, but if it's in a silo that you can't access, how useful is it? So, Joe, imagine if you took all of that sensitive information and hashed it into something that was illegible, but you left all of the other information of the load, miles, origin, zips, location, status, carrier updates so that it was tied to that hash. All of a sudden, you could have a data lake that consumed all of the real information. And if you had the keys to the hash, you could see everything. Yep. If you didn't have keys to the hash, you could see the data lake but you couldn't see any of the sensitive information of what was in there. So you'd have context for your data in your silo to the marketplace. And that's really where we're trying to be able to bring the members. Right. So what's next for you? Are you still looking for those people to, are you still looking for, I should say the companies to buy in and say, this is uh this is what we should do. So we, we are continuing to work in, in the, attracting of new market participants as contributing members that are the glue bringing this market together with the DFMs and the shippers, as well as the consulting companies that are involved in being able to help facilitate that visibility across third-party providers. There's uh, Mike Mulqueen that you've had on your your show many times. Uh, He and I have spoken as well. And and, uh, the, the challenge of being able to orchestrate the decision-making for shippers and having accurate information to be able to do so, uh, I, I think is a common theme. Right. It, so it he, certainly is something that, that the consumers are demanding. So Mike works over, uh, him. he works with Brad, Brad Forrester, JBF, 
consulting and they work with the largest shippers, helping them select transportation management systems and other freight tech and implement it and, and get the most out of it. So, so he talks to these large shippers, but so are you working with the largest digital freight matching companies here in the industry? So there's load boards that are in this industry. There's digital freight matching companies that are in this industry. I was introduced to 46 of the CEOs of digital freight matching companies about eight months ago. And thankfully, my investor in, in the company is John Larkin, who is, is a, a, a legend in this industry. And uh, Where's he really from again? I know I recognize that name. So he, he's got uh, he, he's got a place in Baltimore, a place up in New York, um, and a place in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas is is his home. But um, Stiefel Advisory is oh, yeah, where yeah, yeah. John uh, did a, a lot of his long term work, and and he's now with Clarendon Capital. Um, and John John has such great insight to the digitalization of this industry as he's just he's been you know, a, a, uh, a researcher for this space for, you know, 40 years and has seen the changes in the rail side and in air transport side. And when I shared with him what the vision was to be able to centralize around uh, a utility uh, and told him that I really didn't want to be able to go the venture capital route, uh, the, the model that we've established is one that is very inviting. It, it is participatory and uh, who wouldn't want to be in a company with John Larkin on, on, on standardizing the, the digital process of the, the transportation and supply chain industry? Um, you know, thankfully, we, we've in sharing this vision, we, we also attracted a gentleman named John Greaves, who serves on over 20 steering committees, uh, of, uh, standards bodies around the world. And he is the chairman of our steering committee. Uh, he has worked with Beta previously here in the the, the U.S. as um, uh, as well as IEEE and and GS1. John is a who's who in the the standard space, and uh, he had a background in the transportation industry over in Europe, and was a bus driver and knew about trucks. And when we talked about this, he was like, "There are standards for just about everything. There is not a standard for when a load leaves a dock and where it arrives at a destination, and we should have one." Yep. And I was like, "Well, I mean, we're a ways from it. It's not going to be overnight. It's going to take some no, no, time." No. And we've been, you know, on this journey for eighteen months together. And I love working with John. He's just a super guy, and has a, a real understanding of the mission that we're on with DFM Data. You know, I, I know this kind of thing doesn't happen overnight, but what's interesting is how quickly visibility became um, like electricity to us. Like when somebody says, oh, I have visibility. Now it's not a matter of, of DIA visibility. It's how good is your visibility, right? There's a spectrum now, I think. But yep. um, it, it, you look at the, the, I know ELD is kind of a pain in the ass to some people in the hours of service. It's not necessarily made the driver's job easier, anyone's jobs easier, but we have a lot more data. And I keep thinking happened very relatively quick. So you, so you look and think, yeah, once this catches fire and I think it will, I hope it will, uh, it could happen well, look, fast for you guys. There's, there's an interesting impact with, with the exact example that you just gave, which is that ELD didn't come about because some manufacturer developed an ELD device. ELD came on the scene because the government made a mandate that the drivers were all going to adopt an ELD technology by this drop dead date. 
All right, we'll let it slide a year. All right, we'll let it slide another six months. But now you really got to be able to have it. And it feels like it happened overnight, um, but it really took a lot of planning on the front end of knowledge and vendors filling the marketplace to be able to do that. And in this case of the digital freight matching space, we've had an influx of the digital freight matching companies before the governance has has been forced by the right. government. And 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 how many t- different ELD makers are there? I thought I, I wanted I wanted to say 38, but I suspect that's probably a, a low estimate. <laughs> I, I'm thinking it's probably still below 50. Um, but but even with 50, um, that's a lot. It's, oh, yeah, it's a, it <laughs> a lot to be able to interface to a lot of variability and a, a standards organization that has the time and the inclination to be able to help the industry do better we wouldn't have the, is different than right. what, what TIA does to advocate for brokers and for brokers' interests and different than what the Truckload Carrier of Carriers Association of America does. I mean, the, each of the organizations in the industry have their role, but we don't have yet a... An effectively operating standards committee that has got regular discussions and meetings of the key leaders in the market that are driving towards digitalization. And you and you think about that ELD and again. I I, I I don't live with it day to day, so I I do know people have challenges with it, but I don't think we'd have the visibility we have today without the ELD mandate. The ELD mandate uh, enabled the creation of about sixty percent of the DFMs that are out there today. Yep. It was the raw data that enabled that that technical build to begin. Yep, yep. So, Mike, let's wrap this bad boy up. So give us some final thoughts on this topic, and then uh, let's talk about how people can reach out and talk to you and become part of this this movement. So um, final thoughts. DFM Data is just very excited to be in a position of supporting this emerging industry and has a a very transparent governance and historical uh, providence of everything that we have done from formation through our current state. And we, we humbly invite each of the DFMs and each of the contributing members in the space to to reach out for us. And we have a contact form on our dfmdata.com website for uh, participants to be able to reach out. And uh, that, that sends a direct communication to our team for onboarding. And we, we, we don't, we're not one of those that's forcing everybody, send us money, send us money. We have an opportunity for people to be able to come in and feel around inside of the system before they sign contracts, see everything that we've constructed for them and see where the true vision for the organization is. And um, there's so much that we can achieve if we work together on being able to digitalize this space. But if if we continue to to, um, just build the bigger silos and bigger haystacks, it's really hard to find anything inside of them. And I, I really encourage the industry to be able to take a deep breath, look back, see what's here in front of us as an opportunity and capitalize on, on what's here in front of us right now to really be able to make this industry become digital in, 
in short order. Yep. And what I'll do, Michael, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. I'll also put a, a link to DFM data in the show notes. Anyone who wants to reach out can reach out and talk to you. And again, I, I think this is an excellent initiative. I love what you're doing. It's a uh, I, you know, I don't know that I know I don't know the details. You know, you you, you speak a lot of tech, but uh, I feel like this unique identifier is long overdue. So I really love what you're doing, and we it's need, long overdue. Yeah, it, you know, and um, it comes up on my podcast every once in a while. The government sometimes forces things on us, um, like the ELD man, the eight hours of service, and we've still gotten value out of it. And, and but other things somewhere along the line, somebody organized, somebody. In, and it's got to be an industry. There's there's no point where you're going to be able to say, "Yeah, I did that." No one the, no one wants to hear it, Michael it did it by himself. Nope. It has to be. I got the industry leaders together, and we agreed this was best for our customers and best for us. Let's do it. <laughs> well, DFM Data Corp looked at it as you know all the people that I hired to be able to come on board. I explained to all of them, "Look, we're not going to own this industry. We're never going to compete with these companies <laughs> that we're working with." Every one of them, we want to be their trash collector. We want to be the recycling bin. We want to be able to be the job that nobody else wants, but we're really well positioned to be able to do it. Let us work for you. Let us help you do this because my whole team has been focused for two years on being able to do this as a neutral governance, not to compete with anybody, not to be able to take their data, but to build this need. It wouldn't work. As soon as I changed course, everybody would would would, would be at my front door. It's I'm, I know what I'm committing to. I knew what I committed to when I started on this journey. And it, it, nothing that's worth having is ever easy to be able to do. This has been a a difficult, hardworking hundred hour a week for me and many on my team to be able to bring solutions to the market that'll help. But um, we're here and 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 anxious, eager to be able to assist this market organized. Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing what you're doing. And again, I think it's a great cause and uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it. Yep. And thank all of you for listening. My podcast, your support is very much appreciated until next time onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.